Welcome to Finding Your Inner Badass with Tom and Bridget, with inspiring stories of those conquering incredible odds and achieving unusual levels of success. Their stories might inspire you. Be sure to tune in and listen to this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Finding Your Inner Badass podcast with Tom and Bridget. Today, our guest is Gretchen Skelka. Did I get that last name right, Gretchen? You did. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show today. And thank you again, Bridget, for joining us all the way from Switzerland. Thank you for having me again. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. So... I'll let you ask the first question. Question, Bridget. It's it's on me. Yes, it's on you. Oh, the I will, I will probably not really ask a question, but I will ask Gretchen to maybe shortly introduce herself. She can sure. do that much better than I can. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. So my name is Gretchen Skalka, and um, thanks, Tom, for for getting it right. Like I was telling you before we went on air, you'd be amazed at how. Those six little letters can be so hard for some people to get in the order that they're in. But um, I am a career strategist and leadership development coach, and um, I have been coaching uh, since 2009. It was not an intentional thing uh, that I got into. We can get into that later, but it has um, evolved over time like every, every other thing has. As I was working my corporate career, um, I was doing this, and then as people's needs changed. So did my coaching basically. And so this, this, and I say that to sort of pre sort of define what my career strategy coaching is. A lot of people will define that as documentation, you know, resumes, you know, covers, things like that. And then interview prep. And that what I have found is those are helpful, but they don't actually get the job done. Point being If you're someone who is struggling with self-confidence, you can have the best resume. Your resume has one job, and that's to get you invited to an interview. After that, it's done. It's all on you. All that lack of confidence comes with you to the interview, whether it's in person or on a Zoom. And at that point, it either works or it doesn't. And so what I was finding with my clients was there were things in addition to the material putting together of of a toolkit, if you will, that had to go, you know, that went into a successful job search, job acquiring (laughs) acquirement and beyond. And then it sort of evolved into now I'm in the job. I'm not getting the promotion that I want. I'm not being recognized for my achievements. I'm not moving in my career. I don't know where my career path should go from here. So it's kind of gotten a lot bigger, which is interesting because it's also very specific in terms of what I do. What I do is based on systems. I create custom plans and systems for people to navigate those challenges. And it's all rooted in, I call it RAM thinking, um, but it's the top of the results pyramid, the R and the A and the M, the results we have in our life. It doesn't matter where we are, are they are, it is the product. The reality is the product of the actions we take. And the actions we take are based on the mindset that we have, what we believe is achievable for us. We either do or we don't based on that. And so it all comes down to that. So it's a nice long way around around it, but saying that's kind of what I do. <laughs> Who were you before you did that? Like you said, you're in your corporate job. Yes. What, what, was, what was that? Yeah, I was a corporate marketing director um, for a large multinational company um, that um, they 
uh, it's a great company. Um, and I had a, my team was content and creative services. And so when I started there, they actually didn't have any of those capabilities. So this was a company that was just beginning to dip their toe into e-commerce. So they were building some transactional websites, but didn't really know how to put the content together or anything else. And so I came in to help write content and it, it very quickly evolved into photography of the product and how was that going to happen? And then we didn't have video. So now we needed that. And so it sort of grew into its own department. I don't think it was ever intended to be, but that's what it, it ended up being. So for the last 10 and a half years, uh, that's what I did before I, I started Career Insights Consulting. Yeah. So, so how did you do the step and, and why did you do the step from marketing to coaching, Gretchen? Yeah. So I got to a point. I guess it was a journey as it is for all of us. But yeah, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So when I first started coaching, it was 2009. I remember it because I was at a, a, com a different company and they had gotten, they'd had a leadership change. And so with the new leadership came an idea of cost cutting and their way of doing that was to basically shutter an entire department and outsource that work to a company in Nashik, India. And so I had friends who worked in that department. It was the entire documentation department. <clears throat> now, this was a containerized shipping company. So bills of lading, all the documents that you would need were being outsourced. So people had been at this company. One of the reasons, and I still love it to this day, is that people would go there like from high school. And they would work there while they were in school and after school and college because like their dad or their brother worked there and they were stevedores or they were, you know, in the documentation. They were there for like 19, 20 years, an entire career, which is almost unheard of now. And so when this happened, it was really scary, but also kind of a convulsive thing for people. Like, how could this happen at this company? This has never happened before. So there were people who'd been there, including some friends of mine who had never looked for a job. They went to work there because their family worked there or their friends worked there. Everyone they knew worked there. So now all of a sudden they have to figure out what am I going to do? What am I even qualified to do? What, what does it take to look for a job? So I just started helping my friends with theirs and word of mouth was, Oh, well, Gretchen helped me with this. Can, you know, maybe she can help you and then referral referral. So over a lot of years, it was strictly referral based. And so I would just help people with whatever they needed. And then it grew from there in terms of not just a finding a job challenge, but I have a challenge talking to my boss. I don't, you know, I don't know how to get on that project, but I really know, I know how to help them with that. So things like that would sort of just come about. And so that was sort of the natural progression of the style of coaching that I was doing. And when I got into management, a light bulb kind of, I guess, went off where I really realized like the people light me up. They just do. I love it. I love helping people figure out what works best for them, how to get what they want. Like I love helping people get what they want. And that's probably, I mean, like for me, I'm a middle child. I'm a second wife. I'm a bonus mom. So I know how to help people get what they want, how to compromise and negotiate and all that good stuff. So it just is like a natural thing for me and it makes me so happy. And so the last role that I had where I was marketing director, I did that job for a long time and I grew three different iterations of the team of content and creative services. And it got to the point where I could phone it in if that sounds, I don't want that to sound bad, but I think that's what I was doing. It was just sort of, you know, automatic. I knew what I was doing. 
but the marketing was great, but that wasn't the thing that really made me happy. And so I literally got to a point where I was like, I, I think I'm done here. I think I'm, I'm, I've done this. Now I'm going to do something else. I had no idea what I was going to do. None actually. Um, so I thought, well, it was the end of 2021 and I thought I'm going to, you know, I did not intend to join the mass migration of people who were doing this. I just thought this is, is, is I, I've reached the zenith of what I'm going to be able to do here. And so I left and I turned the team over to uh, a, a person that I had groomed specifically for this. Like when I hired her, I knew that I wanted her to, to, to be this person who would lead this team. And she is now, and I just makes me so happy. But anyway, so I decided to leave and sort of take some time off to figure that out. And I was actually working with a client who she made this comment. She was like, this is so nice. I'm like, what's so nice? And she goes, well, I can actually talk to you during the day. I'm like, okay, what have, did we not do that before? And she goes, well, yeah, but it was always on the weekend or it would have to be at night because we were both working. And so I would see clients in the evenings or on the weekends. And she was like, you should do this. I was like, do what? She goes, you should do this. You should, you should coach. You should do this for a living. And I'm like, can I do that? I don't know if I can, like, is that allowed? Like I had never, ever, ever considered doing it full time. And so I thought, okay, let's, let's try. Let's see if it'll work out because literally like helping, it just makes me so happy helping people figure out what's the thing that, that they want. And why do they want it? And how do we create a plan to get them there and make it happen? And so I, I had been doing that my entire corporate career. And so that's what I've been doing now. And um, yeah, so that's kind of a very long way around it. But that's kind of been the migration of how to get how I got from there to here. And it's really been about just people connecting people with what it is that that they want. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that, that we have a hard time figuring out those things for ourselves? I mean, you said you love helping people finding out what they want. And then you were sitting there and you needed a friend or a client or colleague to tell you, hey, this is actually what you should do. And then what, what should I do? <laughs> I know. I know. It, it, it's really interesting because if I think back to everything that I, that I did in corporate, it was always about that. So whether, you know, when you're developing, you know, resources, which are human beings, so I don't really like that term, but when you're helping people become the, the professional they're going to be, whether, you know, on my team, they were graphic designers, they were content writers, they were animators. So they were you know videographers. So they were all over the spectrum of the creative sort of group, helping them figure out what they were going to be that progression of, okay, I'm in, I'm doing regular like point of purchase graphics, but I really want to do animation. I really, I saw what, you know, what Bruce did and I really want to learn how to do that. And so figuring out what that looks like, how do we move the team together? And I do this too, as well as I help companies with team development and team advancement and, and cohesion. So how do we figure that out? We teach each other, right? Lunch and learns, things like that. And so it just sort of became this thing, this ripple thing. And I would do it for other departments, sort of help them figure out how to maximize the talent on their team but pour back into that cup, right? Take the people who are doing great things and help them teach other people and help motivate them to do that too. So figure out where you want to go and make it possible to get there, which to me, that's, that is, that's leadership is where you help people become what they are meant to be. 
even if they don't know yet what they're meant to be. You help, you know, sort of make those opportunities available so they can test it out and see what works, what doesn't in a sort of non sort of judgmental, non-threatening environment. You know, it's it's you you figure it out. We did. We actually had a, um, a video project that we did and I put it to the team. And this this was when like the first iteration of the team. So they were very, very young. And I just said, you know, I want us to think about how do we talk about our client five years from now, our customer who can't even drive yet. And this was a company that is rooted in tires and automotive services. So how do we talk to our customer five years from now who can't even drive yet? And I just, you guys figure it out. Step away. And then, like, I know they're working on it. Every day we come to work, they're like huddling, they're having these meetings, they're brainstorming. And then they produce at the end of like a month or so, they produce this video and they called it safety swag and it's out on YouTube somewhere. But basically they wrote the script, they filmed it. They did a green screen. They did the whole thing in the studio that we had built. And it was all about not texting and driving. Right. So, and this was a long, this was like 2012, 13, maybe. So, but it was all about that. And the name of the, it was, the song was called safety swag and what they produced without anybody hovering over them, just saying, this is, this is the, the call to action. How do we do this? Let's figure it out. And they did. And that was a light bulb for me. It was like, if you, if you sort of give people the ingredients and then step away and let them figure out what they want to make from it, they will make what they're supposed to make from it. And I wish that that is something that I could bring to everybody everywhere in terms of how uh, I think work can be. And part of the reason why career strategy, I, I, I sort of always go back to it is because no matter where you are and what you're doing in your life, what you do for work in the enterprise of work, whatever it is that you spend the most of your waking hours on that one single activity and with the people that you're doing it with, whether it's a business and your clients or it's vendors or it's, you know, people at work, your colleagues, your boss, whoever, that is where you're spending the bulk of your time. So it has to mean more than just a paycheck because you're spending more time doing that than you are with your family, with your friends, on your hobbies. So let's figure out how to make that work because when it's not working, you know, people talk about work-life balance. When that area isn't working, nothing is working. And you can try, you can put on a happy face, you can go to your functions and do your things, but it's not working. And it pervades everything else, your relationships, your home, everything. I would, you know, I've been in situations, I had a role early on in my career, very early on. I worked for a sports startup and this was, 96, I started there. And in 2004, they were bought by a huge company, uh, CBS. And when they, when CBS bought them, they didn't need the staff. They wanted the product. They already had people who could do digital. So they let everybody, they laid everybody off. So I was laid off. And I, at that point, took the best piece of advice I had ever gotten professionally. And I said, nope, I don't need that. And I didn't listen. And that piece of advice was, do not take the first job that comes along after you've lost one. Don't do it. And I went, nope, I'm going to do it. It's, this job looks good and I want to do it. And, you know, and of course I was very young. So I'm like, you know, got to make that living. I can't take any time off to figure out what's right for me. I need to plow ahead whether it's right or not or not. And it really was not. It was six months. I literally got to a point where I gave myself pep talks on the way in and on the way home. And at one point, my husband was like, you've got to quit this job. I was bringing that all that yuck home with me every day. 
and I would try to bring good home with me to work, but it was, it was just all that. I don't want to be there. I don't want to do it. This is terrible. It's oppressive. It was coming home with me and it was absolutely affecting my husband. And so that was a good lesson. And I, after that, every role I ever had, I really want to be sure that not only does that not happen for me, but if I have any control, it's not going to happen for anybody else. Yeah. I'm kind of <laughs> flabbergasted. I, I, feel, I feel like if you haven't already written one, there's a book inside you. Yeah, I've, I've thought about that, but you know, don't, it's funny. Don't think about it. Um, but, but what? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's funny because I, you know, I, I was a reporter very early on out of college. Um, I was a reporter at two newspapers in Alabama and then I moved into editing and that brought me to Florida. And then I moved online where I did, you know, photo editing and things like that and content, content, content. And when I've thought about writing my own book, you know, you talk about needing a coach. Coaches use coaches have coaches. Yes, right? yes we do. <laughs> That's going to be the one where, you know, and I, I've had a business coach and and I and I, I loved her. She really, really helped me a lot. Um, and I would probably have to get a writing coach because it is something that I stop myself from doing all the time. Um, not because I don't think I can, because I think I can. I'm just not sure how to get started. So that probably would be an area where I would I would get a coach. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. I don't know any writing coaches. Otherwise, I'd give you a recommendation. But, right. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's you just seem to have so much passion for what you're doing that it just screams book to me. Yeah. It's so. you know I I got I was I got put on a project or it was a team rather in 2015. Um, it was it was a program and we were all supposed to come up with some you know like the big idea some big idea that could really pro you know provide transformational change for our company. And I did some research and I figured out that the one area of the most, you know, uh, financial opportunity and also, also profitability going forward, not just saving money was, uh, personnel, right. Engagement, lack of, you know, engagement feeds the bottom line because it prevents turnover and all these other things from happening, <clears throat> excuse me. And so I took 15 months and I created a pilot program, an engagement program. And, um, I was so proud of that. And I presented it to the C-suite. Everybody was like, yeah, this is great. And then it never went anywhere. And come to find out that is the story of most engagement programs in most companies. When they're introduced and they're created and they're custom for the company. And then there's no real executive buy-in buy rather. So it doesn't happen. It never goes anywhere. And all of the problems and challenges that companies talk about when it comes to the workforce, they're not new and they happen over and over and over again. We're watching some, my dog, we're watching some of them happen right now. Hang on. Sorry. Sorry. We're watching some of them happen right now, right? As people are, companies are determining what to do in terms of bringing the workforce back to the office after uh, being remote from the pandemic. Some are, some aren't, some haven't decided. Some are like, you know, putting the hammer down, very hardcore. You're going to be back in. We want to see everybody here without really thinking about why. What is the actual fundamental need of doing that? I'm so sorry. Hang one sec. He's two and a half. I don't even know what he's listening to, what he's hearing right now, but he needs to stop. I'm going to give him the evil eye. But so 
we're seeing that. And so again, when you talk about, you know, the, the issues that, that the workforce faces, one of the big ones is not being heard, feeling like you are not heard, going right hand in hand with that. It's feeling like you're not being seen. Well, requiring people to come into the office doesn't mean they're going to be seen, <laughs> not in the way they're talking about. And it certainly means they're not being heard if we've not asked them what works for them. Now, I get it if you're if you're if you have to touch the product or the client, right? If you're a dentist, if you're working on a vehicle, right? You're doing the oil change, you're changing a tire, you're a doctor, something like that. You're a school crossing guard. Okay, you have to be there. But if you're if the product of of your work is is an you know from an intellectual standpoint, your brain. If you're a brain worker, thought worker, knowledge worker, whatever you want to call it, that can be done anywhere. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us that. So that is a conversation that is challenging because it's nuanced, right? There are so many layers of why employers are having having trouble doing that whether it's real estate they've committed to from leases or outright buying the property that, you know, they still have to pay for, but may not be necessary anymore. There may not be a market to sell it. Um, maybe the board has ideas or you just never know. So if it's good for one department, it has to be good for all departments, that kind of thing. So there are a lot of challenges, but I think at the bottom line of everything, the ability to communicate with each other and hear what each other are saying right? And you come into it without your own agenda, but just let's, let's really talk it out. Let's see where we, where we all are and then figure out something that's mutually beneficial. And then we can go from there. And surprisingly that, that can be challenging for, for folks. So. <laughs> I, I am a dentist as my day job. And uh, I, w- I would have loved to be able to work from home, but it's just not a career whether it's, you know, right. Yeah. Doable. And I actually had to lay myself off from my own company, which was an interesting uh, no <laughs> exercise because we were ordered to shut down essentially for uh, three months. And uh, but uh, early, early on in my career, I came on with a at the time was what was the largest group pra- practice in northern Ontario. And we were in a in a one of the larger shopping malls and we wanted to expand our, our, our practice and, and go into our own building. And it was, it was a, it was a huge undertaking. One of the things we needed to do was get our, our team on board. Mm-hmm. And we ended up hiring a now defunct consulting company called dental Boot Camp, which had its own controversy back in the day. Um, but they really, uh, opened our eyes to our employees because the first thing they did as part of their engagement, it was anonymous surveys with every single person that works for us. And the results we got back shocked me like in a positive way. Like I I had no idea there was such a strong sense of ownership among some of the people. And there were other people that really couldn't be bothered. I mean, that's, you know, with the sample size of, I think we had 12 employees at that time. Uh, you know, there, I would say 80% of them were like, yeah, let, we want to grow with you. We want to, we want to make these changes and we want to be part of the the solution and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So it, I think the companies that, that don't buy into those engagement programs are very short-sighted. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, and if I could ask with the one uh, that project that you put your heart and soul into that just didn't go anywhere, what sort of uh, post-presentation follow-up push did you put into it? 
Yeah, I mean, so I started doing research in terms of what the um, the turnover rates were, and this went by by department, you know, because some had it much higher than others. So what did that look like? So from you know the retail side had much higher than the operational side. So I continued to track those things, and I monet, you know, I showed them how to monetize those things, but I also you know, introduce some, some new processes along the way. And I had a couple of um, pilot sort of departments, friends of mine who did engage in that. And we were able to show real, you know, improvement in those areas, but it just wasn't something that the company was prepared to, to do at the time. So I tried, you know, I did, I did my follow-up. I tried to really have actionable you know, measurable results so that I could show people instead of just kind of talking through the possibility. So we had, you know, in practice what was happening versus what was happening or not happening from some departments who weren't practicing this. I even had one department where I had, you know, a friend who had two teams. We had one do some of them and one not. And, you know, the results spoke for themselves, but I think it was just one of those where Granted, this company had a lot going on, always does, like a lot of companies. There are always a million projects going on, a lot to improve. We want to, you know, jump on that. You know, what's a project that's immediately capitalizable? That's going to go right up on the priority list, right? So, you know, and then what's the what's the you know financial, you know, investment that we're going to have to make on that? How wide ranging is it? How quickly can we ramp it up across the whole enterprise? So all those things are sort of they create these challenges, but there's a way to work through them. Um, but I think it just, you know, at that time, it was not the landscape for that. Um, I was hoping because being invited to, you know, find something and then present it, um, I thought we were ready for that. But um, but we, you know, it didn't happen. So but that was my follow up with it. Yeah. Can I tell you what sold us on this rather expensive consulting company? Yeah. They offered a guarantee money back guarantee if we didn't have an increase in production revenue of 50% within six months. Oh, wow. Good for them. You ever consider a guarantee for future? Uh, I did not because, you know, and no, love I did guarantees. I know, I know they do. And I know I never did. Um, and shame on me because that probably might have been a little more persuasive. Um, but no, I didn't. It carries a lot of weight when you have the confidence to go, I, I guarantee you'll have this or, or, you know, X amount of dollars back Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, uh, or some variation in thereof, but yeah, uh, it, it was, uh, that's cause I mean, I had one, two, three partners in myself. So four of us, and I was the junior partner coming on board. I mean, it was equal, but I was the least seniority in, in, in the partnership. Yeah. And uh, there are others more gung ho, others more reticent. And we had actually wanted to say, look, don't hold us back. But you don't, if you don't want to get on board, that's fine. But don't stop us from doing this. And yeah. we eventually, you know, he was bought out. But um, it was it was quite quite the uh, quite the adventure. Yeah. No, I probably should have thought about that, but I didn't. Shame on me. <laughs> Hindsight, well, I mean, it's, it's just something that never crossed your mind, right? No, and, and, it really uh, didn't. Yeah. Uh, another example of a guarantee that worked worked with me personally was, uh, I'm sure you remember Ryan Matthew from High Performing Coach. Mm -hmm. I did his weekend retreat, and he, he basically said, uh, "It's effing guaranteed to change your life." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, that's pretty freaking confident." Yeah. <laughs> 
So. And did it? Oh yes. Uh, I would, I would, oh, this is going to sound like a testimonial program right now. I, I would <laughs> say in that weekend, I got the equivalent of five years of psychoanalysis and, and benefit. Very cool. And I've cured my depression. So it was worth every penny and then some. Good for you. That's excellent. I love He'll that. eventually be on this podcast when our audience is a little bit bigger, but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, I actually saw some updates uh, from him. They're, they're having some, they're growing too. So that's, that's nice to, to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Can I, can I get back to you personally, Gretchen? A bit? Yeah. Because, I mean, coming back to our title, finding your inner badass. Um, I know that there have been a couple of, how should I say that, fundamental events in your life, which may have <laughs> there have been more than a few influenced also your your career path or yeah. also your personal path. Yeah, and I don't know if and how far you would like to talk about it, but but are you willing to share maybe a bit about your own story? Yeah, how, yeah. How that influenced your decisions in your own career? Yeah, yeah, because I don't, I'm willing to, I don't really think that you can get where I am without having gone through all those things. And there's more than a couple, as you know, but um, yeah, so um, I don't know how far back I should go, but I'll just go as far back as, um, uh, so in 2009, oddly, and these are not connected, but the year that I started coaching was also the year that I got diagnosed with MS. And so that was, um, it was one of those, it was a three year make diagnosis, in the making, I got tested for everything under the sun and they were all coming back that I was fine. And at one point I remember calling my dad who was an ophthalmologist and I was like, dad, I think it's all in my head. Every test comes back. I'm fine. And he goes, it is in your head. It's neuro, it's neurological go to a neuro ophthalmologist. And so after three years of just so much testing of, you know, nystagmography for vertigo and cardiac catheterization, all this other stuff, I had a, I had a, um, an MRI and then a spinal tap. And then 18 days later, I got this gigantic fax and that was my diagnosis. And then he got me my second and third opinions. The, the, that was the first time that there had been big events that had happened, but that was the first time something truly life-changing was like right there. And what am I going to do about it? And like a lot of people, uh, I'm not unique in this way. I got super duper into my victimhood. I mean, super into it for a couple of years. And what was me? This is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And until I realized that it was really preventing me from doing a lot of things. Now I also made some decisions that took a long time to, to correct. Like I had a, a complete moratorium, like nobody could do video or photography of me, like nothing. I've been married 28 years. There are virtually no photos of my husband, at any of our trips or anything else, because I was like, no, no photos. Cause I was afraid to see myself decline physically in, in photos or video over time. That's another reason why when I tell people like, you know, Let's work on what we're doing and what we're not doing because not taking any action is go. It is absolutely going to. It'll kill you. It'll kill your dreams. It'll kill everything. And I know because I've I've been there and I went through that. Now coming a few years later, uh, I called the hellscape of 2014 through 2018, and these are the ones that absolutely uh, reshaped my brain, if you will, and recast how I think about life in general and why I don't. 
I do not take things for granted. I do not wait on what I want. Um, you know, and I encourage people to, to really be very mindful and present with themselves and honest with themselves. So going back 2014 was, um, and I can't, I can't even tell this, you know, my story without all of these being part of it. Um, these are the big ones, but they're not certainly all of them that happened during those years. But in 2014, um, the end of that year, I had given my parents a hot air balloon ride for their 50th wedding anniversary in October. And my dad had always wanted to take a hot air balloon ride. So they did. And I called, it was the 23rd uh, of October. And um, my dad answered the phone. He said, oh, it was great. Your mother took so many pictures. But we're at the emergency room because we had a crash landing and she broke both of her arms. Now, and my mom was like 73 at the time, 72. So turns out she broke both of her arms at the tip of the humerus. And so she was very osteoporotic and nobody knew at the time. So that was, the recovery was terrible. So that was October. Thanksgiving, my niece, Sydney, uh, who was 14 at the time, uh, was very animated, very questioning, but I was so focused on my mom that I really wasn't very present with her. And that's, uh, I, I can't, I cannot separate those two things because in December, on December 7th of 2014, Sydney hung herself. She committed suicide. And so my mom, I remember her funeral and my mom is in slings. It just, the whole thing is surreal. There was almost no emotion because we didn't know how to process any of it. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I, I had been back back and forth between Florida and Alabama to help out and do things. And so when the funeral was over, I drove back to home to here in Florida. And then I realized it's Christmas. She, it's our first one without her. So I threw some stuff in the car and off I went again. And I was so tired. I could barely make it up into Georgia. And it's a long drive from where I live in South Florida up to Georgia. So I got a hotel room and I didn't intend to, but after it was a, a good, a good many minutes that I realized I had just been sort of cleansing my mind. My, like my brain did it automatically. And I was like, you know, I, I say I was meditating, but I don't know exactly what it was, but I know I could not recreate it. And I tried. And that's when I began training and studying meditation because that feeling that was the most clear I had been since the hot air balloon accident. And I wanted it back because so many people needed me and I, I was so spent. So I spent, you know, I was, I started, I started trying to meditate and, um, that I, I credit with that time. So that was how 2014 ended. 2015, my mom spent the entire year in rehab for her shoulder. She was told she would never raise her arms over her head. Well, Thanksgiving of 2015, a year later, I'm home visiting and my mom is getting something out of a cabinet in the kitchen and she's got one hand like this. And I was like, mom, what are you doing? And she turns around. She's like, what? I said, you're not supposed to be able to do that. She goes, oh, I've, I've been killing it in physical therapy. They don't even know I'm the best student there. And I said, raise them both. Let me see. So I have a picture of my mom in this green cable knit sweater, raising both hands over her head. I love that picture. And, um, yeah, I was so proud of her and she, she worked so hard in physical therapy and that was Thanksgiving of 2015. And I was, I had, was up there visiting. I was going to come back for Christmas a month later. 
And around the 19th of the 20th, my dad called and said mom had, had not been feeling well. She went in. They found a shadow on one lung. And then two days later, he was like, we're, she's really not feeling well. She doesn't want anybody to know. So if, when you come up for the holidays, don't tell her you know. And I was like, for the holidays, I'm getting in the car right now. So I, this became a pattern. I threw some stuff in the car. Off I went to Alabama. And she was in, she was at the emergency room. And so I just drove right there. And that I ended up, so I ended up moving into the hospital with her. So she went into the hospital right before Christmas, 2015. And um, she died January 12th, 2016. So it was like wildfire. And I can't even go into all, it just was terrible. She was so important to me. But anyway, so let's fast forward. Um, so that was how 2015 ended and 2016 started. So 2016, my dad and I went to Maine to scatter her, part of her ashes on Hancock Pond, which she loved in Denmark, Maine. She went, she spent summers there when she was little. So it was really important to her. And that was in June on her birthday. And so we go through the rest of the summer and early fall and everything. And we get to the holidays and the holidays now to, after two years, I'm like, no, I don't, mm, please don't make me go through the holidays, but this year it's going to be great. So I'm at work at uh, my last corporate job and I am setting up the holiday, the Christmas lunch for everyone. And I get back to my office and my phone is there and it rings and it says dad cell. And that's, you know, Oh dad, he's calling. So, I pick up the phone and I said, Hey dad, what's up? And this voice from, I grew up in rural Alabama. So what I heard was this is Martin Brasher from the Vandiver fire department, just as Southern as you can be. And I was like, fire department, what? Now my parents place, it's a farm and it's rural Alabama, Starrett, Alabama. So you have to leave pavement, go down a dirt road, cross a railroad track, go up another dirt road just to get to their house. And then he said, your daddy's been hit by a train. <laughs> And I was like, what? And I'm screaming. I'm in the middle of an office building. I'm screaming like, what? I'm sorry, what? And my little sister had already moved in with him. She was widowed in, in 2006. And so she had moved in with him. And he said, can you get down here? And I said, sir, I'm in, I'm in South Florida. But my little sister lives with him. Now, I understand why he called me because I was the only Scalca in my dad's phone. My little sister has her marriage. I kept my name when I got married. Both my sisters took their husband's names. So I said, she's there. You know, she can get down there. She can walk down the road. And he said, well, we're getting him in the ambulance and we're going. So I called Kirsten and that's my little sister. And I said, you know, don't get upset. But this just happened. I just got this call and they're taking him to the hospital. So dad was in trauma for nine days. And, and I mean, it, he was in my mom's old car. He was going to the post office and he had gotten far enough over the tracks. I don't know how he didn't hear the train, but it hit him at about 75 miles an hour. And it pushed him into that gravel embankment that's on the other side, opposite side of the tracks. And he survived, but not, I mean, he has neuropathy and some other things, but he's still with us. So that was how 20, <laughs> 2016 ended was with my dad in trauma. So we are back in the hospital, hospitals and funeral homes were, that was how the holidays went. So then 2017, my husband and I were planning to, we used to try to take a big trip every year. And this year was Stockholm and I was so excited and we needed it like, Oh, great. And he was getting real winded 
And um, so we, you know, I said, you got to go to the doctor because I can't be listening to this wheezing all over the archipelago. Like I want to enjoy this trip. And um, he had a mitral valve problem. So in 2017, in February, my husband had what they said was minimally invasive heart surgery. He was going to be in the hospital for four days, home for a week, and then resume normal activities. Except he did not wake up from his surgery for six days. They could not bring him out of anesthesia. Every time they tried, his ventricles would stop squeezing. So six days. And when he finally did wake up, he had no idea who he was, why, where he was, why he was in the hospital, uh, me, anything. It took him a little more than a month to learn how to walk and eat and, and do all those things, shower and do all those things again before he was able to come home. And then when he got home, he was home for about a month or so. And then he tried to go back to work. He's still doing occupational therapy as outpatient. And he tried to go back to work. And we realized this is probably not going to be something we're going to be able to do. So he retired in 2017. And that was an, it's, it's, it was an adjustment. So then 2018, 2018 was going to be the year. Everything's going to change. We're going to turn it all around. We all decided to take a trip. Me, Steve, Chris, remember I'm a bonus mom. So uh, we went to um, Prague, Vienna and Budapest that summer, that June. And I had just gotten a promotion at work. And that was kind of like, I didn't even work to me was like this thing floating out there while all this was going on. And I say that because looking back and I, and I was very cognizant of it at the time, the people that I worked with, the team that I had, they got me through that as much as anything else. And that's another reason why I'm so passionate about the work experience. But we got back from our trip and everything was great. Chris lives in New York. So off he went back home and things are great for a couple months. And then September 12th, I worked late. Uh, I got home a little bit late and walked in the door. Hey, hey, Steve's making dinner. And our house at the time had this big window, this big picture window in the back of the kitchen. So I'm talking to him, but I'm looking in the backyard and my, my brain is like, something's up. And there was just this thick line of black smoke that my brain caught, but I didn't really process like what it was. And then all of a sudden there was like this blue light pop, pop, pop. And things started literally like popping off the walls. And I just remember saying, get out, get out, get out. And what had happened was a high transmission power line that ran the length of our community one of the lines, there were four lines on it and it just fell. Um, and it shaved the metal fence in the backyard on its way to the ground and it electrified the fence. And so it sent that current from the fence to the screen enclosure up the gutters and through the house and boom, that was it. And so February or September 12th, 2018 is when the house blew up. And so, you know, and I, that night and it's September in Florida, so it's hot and humid and I had just gotten home. We're standing on the driveway while the police and the fire department are trying to get everything under control. Neighbors are coming over like, what's going on? And there's smoke. And the, I mean, like, it's just it's a surreal scene. And then when it's done, everybody's just sort of gone. And Steve and I are literally on the driveway going, what do we do now? We can't obviously go back in. Like, there's nothing. You know, like we couldn't do anything. So we went to a hotel and I was like, I think I have to file an insurance claim. So I'm like, we're literally like robots trying to like figure out what to do. And that was a couple of years of um, 
being, you know, essentially homeless. Uh, we live in South Florida. It's a tourist area, very transient area. We were also in season, which is like the most populated we're going to get down here. We didn't have anything. So we needed something furnished. We had no idea how long it was going to be. So we moved and moved and moved. And at that point in time, you still have to pay mortgage on a house you can't live in. But you also, when you're moving, you have to pay rent is like, I hadn't rented in like 20 years. First, last, and security. So three months basically worth of rent while you've already had to pay your mortgage. Oh, and by the way, it was very quickly obvious we were going to have to hire an attorney because our insurance company was not wanting to play nice. So that was just an insane period of time. We were moving a lot. Um really not sure of it. There was no like permanency. There was no feeling of safety. If you want to like, none of that was there. All the things that would give you anxiety, money, safety, like all of that permanence. And I had my first anxiety attack in this one apartment. We were staying in Jupiter, Florida. And I, I, I'm like, I, I thought I was dying. I thought I was having a heart attack. And of course my husband's fine. And I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. And I started having these odd nightmares about the event and him dying and that kind of thing. And so all those things combined, you know, I, during those two, almost two years of being essentially homeless and moving a lot, I actually started really doubling down on me. Who am I? What is going on? Why do I feel the way I feel? How can I stop this? What can I do? And I started just, you know, exploring you know, mindfulness and, and really getting into that and how to, how to work with that. And one of the places that we stayed, uh, the lady who let us stay there, uh, she, that was something that she did. And so it was just, you know, when you, when you're ready, things happen for you. Like, what is it they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yep. And so I kept finding people. I kept coming into contact with people who could help me. And, and they did. And so those, those years from 2014 to 2018, all those things that happened and there were more, but those were the, the, the biggest ones. They, yeah, they, they changed everything. When I tell people, I know how to get you through. If you feel like you're staying in the middle of a tornado, I know how to get you through it. I know how, because I've done it. When you say you, you know, you're so stressed about money, you don't think you're going to, you can survive it. I know what that's like. And I know what it's like for a prolonged period of time. I can get you through it. And because you think your way through it, you create systems that you can work, that you can anchor yourself to so that when things feel chaotic, you can come back and grab it and go, no, I can, I can start from here again. I have a foundation, you know, off camera, but on this bookshelf over here, I have a huge five inch binder. And that's what got me through the house blowing up because when you have nothing and all your stuff is, you know, all over the place and money is everywhere. You have no idea. By the time we got to mediation, that binder is what got us to mediation and what got us through that lawsuit because it was just my my plan, my system for accounting for everything, keeping myself on track. And it's just those personal systems. So personal system design is is something that I do. But yeah, to your point, Bridget, like how do I know, you know, how to help people and how to do what I do, career or otherwise? It's because of those things. And so when you think about if you've ever done um, the sage brain training, you know, when they're like, what's the gift? What's the opportunity in the event? And you never see it when it's happening. Like, I'm sorry, when any of those things happen, when my mom, when that cancer was just like running through her body, 
no, you don't see a gift there, you know, and you don't see it for a while. And when my dad, you know, when I got that call and I'm in the hot and I saw, you know, you see your, your parent like that. No, you know, all those things that happen, my nieces, you know, all just everything, you don't see it, but in hindsight you do, and you can begin to connect those things and figure out what they're meant to show you. And so I, yeah, the passion that I have is because I know there's a different way for people to, you can get out of that thinking. You can get out of that, that, you know, I'm glad I was able to work through my own victimhood about MS because I never would have been able to be there for my family and through all of these other things had I still been there. I liken victimhood to like if you put on something that's too small, like a coat that's too small, a shirt that's too small, and then you try to move in it, right? You try to bend, you try to reach for something. You can't do it because it's too small. It's restricting everything that you do. That's what my victimhood did to me. And that's what it does to people. But if you can get, if you can begin to see the world in, in terms greater than that and the opportunities that are there for you and believe that they're there for you, that's where mindset comes in. Then you can begin to create the avenues and opportunities where those things can happen for you. And they do. I'm just going to re- reiterate what I said before. You have to write the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> the lessons you've you've just talked about in, in, a, in a written, expanded format will change people's lives. Oh, like, back me up here, Bridget. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and I mean, yeah, I think you have already written the book in your head. Yeah. Your yeah, seriously. Like, that yeah. was so eloquent, I mean, that, that, that whole soliloquy to- there. What was exactly. was just like you were just nailing it point after point, and I'm just like, this is like an audiobook. It's perfect. Just just yeah. write it, <laughs> write it and yeah. record it. <laughs> it's it's you know when you go through something like that, and again, you know everybody goes through things, and and you know there's that old I think there's a, this old saying about that life or the universe will will throw you you know a pebble then a rock no a feather then a pebble then a rock and a boulder and so i think that i had had a lot of feathers years before i think that the ms diagnosis was a pebble actually it really wasn't the biggest thing and i do honestly and again not because everybody walks a very different path with with that disease it is not the same for any two people and so my you know i'm always the most ambulatory person when i go to my neurologist always and that, and I'm that my gratitude for that is not lost. I mean, I absolutely am grateful for that. But that to me was a pebble, you know, you, and, and because that was, you know, sort of, okay, how do I make sense of this? And woe is me kind of, that did happen for me. But then when it starts to be your support system, the people that you love, and there was no greater support system for me than my mom. And there was no discussion about what happened to her. I mean, the hot air balloon accident should have been a rock. And we didn't see it that way. We just, you know, it was this unfortunate thing that happened, but it completely obscured everyone's, it clouded our vision in terms of how to help my niece. We had no idea. And we learned from that. It was an expensive lesson to learn, but we did. And then you move from that. And then with Steve, that's why one of the, with Steve's surgery, I remember I was like, we are not not doing this again. So I, I had like meditation music. I was, I would lay my phone on his chest because he was on a a ventilator. And so I would lay my phone right here on his chest and shoulder and I would just play it for him so that he could be calm. Cause all you hear is beeps and, and like, you know, of the machine and all this other stuff. And it's very medicinal and, 
you know, I didn't want that for him. So I wanted his brain to kind of process something differently. But I think everything that happened, there were little things that I took from the thing before to make it better. And when I look at somebody and I, you know, who's going through something, you know, and it'll sound, you know, kind of trite for people to say, I know there's a way through this for you. I know this, you will not stay here. You can overcome this. People will look at you with the glassy eyes or the, "Mm -mm, you don't know, you don't know, you're not me. You don't know what's going on with me. And to them, I want to say lovingly with, with absolute love and respect, I have been you. I have absolutely been you. There's almost nothing somebody can, can tell me that I haven't been through myself. Not being able to have kids. Yep. That's why I'm a bonus mom. I couldn't have my own, you know? Like that's, you know, we go way, way back for that, but you, through your life, you accumulate the experiences. But I always like to think of it as you accumulate wisdoms, little little insights into not only yourself, but we're a human, you know, we're all connected. So you have insights into other people that they may not yet have. So help them illuminate that piece for them that they may not yet even be able to see, make it easy for them when they have to walk that they have to step into whatever's going to be there for them. Make it easy for them to walk through it. So I have a a question for you that I have to kind of preface with um, uh, kind of a a review of our our most recent episode with uh, a friend of mine. His name was Michael Owen, and he he had the, the childhood from hell. You name it, it happened to him. And he's become father extraordinaire, husband extraordinaire, very successful and very mindful of, of giving back and, and like all that stuff. And I mean, you, you've had your own version there, thereof in, in your life. And so I'm sure we can all think of people in our own lives that some have done what you've done and some have given up. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you just give up? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> You know, I honestly, Bridget, I had to ask, a, I had to ask a burner question. It was my turn. <laughs> it's, okay. a, it's a really good question. And I can't even say that I know the answer. None of it was intentional. There's just the thing of, you know, you, you can't, you know, I mean, where I go, so goes my husband, right? So goes my family. If I had given up when when the hot air balloon happened, if I had given up when my mom really got, got injured and she went through a lot, I mean, a lot with that, you know, that wouldn't have, I would have never been prepared for what eventually happened with her. And I wouldn't have been able to be there for her in those last, you know, barely three weeks, you know, and she had a little time to even process what was happening before she wasn't able to communicate anymore. But, you know, giving, I mean, I, some members of my family, I think have given up in a way. And, but again, their journey is very different. I try to be there, not give up so I can be there for them. You know, with Steve, when that happened for him, I mean, you know, he's my person, no matter what good times or bad, he's my person. So whatever he needs help with, I need to be there to help him with that. But that's also my nature. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a helper. <laughs> like if you look at my MBTI and like my Clifton strengths and my Enneagram and all those other kind of things. And plus my, my human design, I'm a projector. So, you know, I'm, I'm a helper, but you know, I, I just don't think that that was ever even a thought that I had was to give up. Probably. I don't know. Maybe I did. They have that thought, but 
Yeah, you have to fix things. So yeah. Well, well, the reason I asked that question specifically is, I mean, in in my own family, I I have someone who's actually I, I've had two people, three three people that have given up in in different ways, mm-hmm. and uh, I've had to learn how to like emo- uh, emotionally insulate myself from that because mm-hmm. I'm very empathic and and I want to help people just much like yourself yeah. and it's 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 very challenging and and I finally had to um after the the Madeira retreat we talked about I said okay I'm going to give it one more shot and if it doesn't work my conscience is clear and I did and it didn't work and you know it, my conscience is 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 clear for the yeah. most part there's still a little you know <laughs> things, but yeah uh, the, the perspective you keep, um, I, I think is very powerful, um, and, and, and using it to help other people just, just, you know, knocks it off the chart in, in my humble opinion, but so many people just can't do what you did. Like they shut down, they, they, mm-hmm. um, yep. I mean, I'm <laughs> sure you had your moments, right. You know, but what. Was it was it just innate, like you said, you just it didn't occur to you, or or was there some purposeful oomph behind it? I think for me it was more of if I if I give up, because when I had the panic attack, I remember being in this condo that this lady was letting us stay in. And I'm sweating and my my chest is like boom, boom. Like I literally thought I was having a heart attack. I was like, this must be what it feels like. And, you know, I'm looking at my husband. He's fine. Like, you know, I'm clearly having a problem. But I, I, I remember also thinking I've got to get this under control because, you know, he'd already remember he'd already come through that surgery and there certain things are just not easy for him anymore. They don't come naturally to him anymore. Some certain cognitive processes do not come naturally to him anymore. So I have to to do it. You know, there's, I guess, a sense of responsibility, but there's also... I want to be sure that I can help smooth things out for other people, people I care about. Um, but also that I know that if, if you, if you give up, then all the chance that could happen on the other side of whatever it is, is gone. And on the, I mean, on the other side, it could be more of this. You just never know. I mean, those four years, every single time something happened, I'm like, Oh wow, there's nothing that can beat that. And then something else happened you know? And so you, you keep going. Um, I just don't think that I really thought that it was something I could, could do, uh, would be to give up. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the scariest thing I ever gave up was actually my corporate career because that was, you know, I mean, and that was intentional. That was a decision that I made and it wasn't something that just happened to me that I had to figure out how to get through, how to make sense of something that was completely you know, nonsensical and you can't possibly see the outcome of it. And you don't have any control really over, I don't have control over the doctors. I don't have control over those things, but I have control over me. And so, you know, what does that look like? But I think, yeah, that was probably the scariest one was deciding um, maybe not to see that one through, but then to open the door to something else. Um, So I don't think, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever thought about giving up. That's so yeah. awesome. That <laughs> yeah. is so awesome. Wonderful. Um, people who, who come to you for for help, mm-hmm. what 
like there's there's you know kind of like an emotional sine wave in life right that we all are on what what if what would someone typically like they must have hit their you know typically i'm guessing they come near to their rock bottom how do they get from that to being able to ask you for help in, in your in your own estimation it depends on who they are and how they come into how they i guess get introduced to me um a lot of people that i've known for a long time they'll let their you know, acquaintances or other people know who are having a challenge, you know, you, and it's not really like you should go to her for anything. It's like, you should talk to Gretchen, you know, because she, she could, she could tell you some stuff about this, about how to get through this. She, she knows. Um, but then other people, I've had people who come to me mostly like, you know, they're just so frustrated because nothing is working, nothing they're trying at work is working. They don't realize that, you know, it's, a lot of the, and, I, and I, basically I've said this before, most of the people who come to me about work challenges, what ends up being the challenge isn't work. It's something here, mm -hmm. right? That yeah. it's, it's, it's part of their narrative that they've created for themselves. It's keeping them in a spot that really isn't where they're meant to be. And they're unhappy because they know fundamentally they're not meant to be there, but they're frustrated because they don't know how to get out of it. And so I don't know that I've had anybody that I've worked with who I would say has hit rock bottom, maybe their emotional bottom for like, they're just exhausted from trying and trying and trying. And so when they come to me, it's usually because they, they know someone who I've helped and worked with, or they know my story and they're curious about it, or they've, they've seen, like I've had people who've like seen pieces of content, things I've written about um, and said, Oh, wow. You know, that, yeah, I, I feel that I felt the same way. And what can you do for me? Um, and then it's a matter of kind of figuring out where, where we are, like, what are we actually working with? Um, and like I say, a lot of times people are really confused about what the actual, what the actual issue is, you know, think it's our, we think it's our boss, or we think it's, you know, um, you know, somebody else's perception of us. And it it's usually not that it's usually us. Yeah. It's, it's funny you should say that um, there was a time in, in not the very recent past, to be honest, where I was becoming very disenchanted with Canadian politics, uh, local politics, healthcare politics. And I was literally looking at uh, jobs in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Like to just make a big change and, and, and get out of Dodge and I, I was reminded of a, a seminar I was at where a, uh, a dentist who was doing like a cosmetic uh, lesson uh, said he was going to quit dentistry because he hated it. He couldn't get out of bed in the morning and all this stuff. And he was going to go into, into uh, finance or something. Wow. And his uncle asked him, how do you know you're going to be any happier in finance? Which is a really good question for him. And then he realized, you know, his uncle asked him, what if you just didn't do the things you didn't like about dentistry anymore? And suddenly he's like, okay, well, I'm referring out all my kids, referring out all my root canals, and I just want to focus on cosmetics. And in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, he built one of the best cosmetic practices out there. And he's associated with the, the top school for cosmetics in, in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that, that, that got me thinking, is it, is it the politics or is it, my attitude towards them. And I think I saved myself a lot of money 
realizing <laughs> it, it was it was me caring about the wrong things. Like you know, it's it's like look, I can't change uh, people's decision to uh, elect Trudeau three times. I, I can't I can't do anything about that. And I don't know what the politics are in New Zealand, which is probably why I think it's a good place to move to. And if I learned more about it and spent more time, I'd be equally upset about something else. So it was <laughs> it was a, it was a big deal uh, to come to that realization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mother uh, passed in 2013 rather uh, tragically. Um, but her death really started at first a downward spiral mm -hmm. um, but then a, a very potent upward spiral as far as realizing you know I'm gonna die too sometime mm -hmm. and that made me change my values big time um, did you have any similar revelations when uh, those those events happen in your life yeah. Um, actually, it's interesting because I don't know that I really understood the weight that that it was putting on me at the time. But after the house blew up, I um, I was having these awful nightmares about, you know, me pulling my husband out of the house and he's dead and this kind of thing. We got electrocuted in the pool and blah, blah, blah. So I started to see a therapist and we were working on uh, we have been working on cognitive behavioral therapy, but the first meeting I had with him, and again, this is prefaced about our house blowing up and we were both in it at the time. But when I went in the first time to see him, I sat down and all of a sudden, the very first thing out of my mouth was everybody around me dies. But that was what came out. Not my house, nothing about my house. And I'm crying and everybody died. And I'm talking about going all the way back, you know, to 2006, my brother-in-law with the boating accident. And then, you know, my niece and my mom, blah, blah, you know, and dad very, you know, he didn't, but he came close and Steve, he didn't, but he came close and, you know, I have these fears about the two of them. And so all these things, and they were weighing on me. Right. And I didn't realize it at the time. And so death had very much been on my mind. Um, but I, I was so busy, you know, keeping my fingers in the dam and keeping everything going and making sure everybody's taken care of that I really had not been paying attention to how much that was on my mind. And I'm glad that I, that I had that sort of revelation, if you will, because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I, I very much am on the page of, you know, everything, this pen, everything is, you know, atoms moving at a certain rate of speed. So it's all energy and, you know, it goes somewhere, but it's never fully gone. And so I talk to my mom all the time. I know she's around. My little sister jokes that, you know, she likes to go through the house and make the pictures go a little askew. She'll she, seriously like she'll she'll change them. Like this morning we joke about it. I'm like, well, it's the house settling. But is it like we don't know? But anyway, but, you know, we talk about that. We talk about how my mom, you know, um, when the train accident happened that, you know, we were we we thank her for pushing that car just far enough off the tracks that it wasn't a broadside. It was just on the back. Otherwise, it would have been a different conversation. But I do think a lot about it. And I do think that it is a fundamental thing that I, that I want for everybody to understand. Your time is finite. We get one ride on this rock. One, right? Make the most of it. You know, when you're when something, you know, like politics or, you know, your neighbor putting his trash cans out too early or whatever, when those things upset you, 
road rage, right? That's a great example. When people cut you off or they do something in traffic that you don't like, you can leave it there or you can take it with you. You can pack it up and bring it home with you, but you get to choose what impacts your life, what you carry with you. Carry the good stuff because it's there. But sometimes we get so caught up in what we don't like that we don't see it. And so we're carrying around the bad stuff. You know, and the re- you know, and and I, I remember saying this yesterday to somebody that you know the surest way to make sure that bad things happen in your life is to pay attention to them, and they'll keep happening, right? Mm-hmm. So they're out there, but if you if you if you focus on and give your attention to what is working, that you know it's not going to prevent bad things from happening, but it's going to keep your focus where it's going to you know, help you flourish and help you thrive and help you, you be happy. And isn't that what it's all about? Like who wants to go through life miserable? Nobody. I know you a know? lot of people that do actually. They do. <laughs> but, yeah, but it seems, Sometimes it seems to be an addiction, doesn't it? I, th- I think for people, some people. And it then is. we are back to, to the victim role. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also yeah. it's, it's, it goes back to maybe for some people for their childhood where yeah. if you were in a situation where you really didn't, you weren't afforded a lot of attention, you know, unless you were bad, right? If you were being good, then you were kind of ignored because there's nothing to do there. He or she's being good. But if you were bad, you got attention and -hmm. kids don't care. They just want, they want to know that somebody's there paying attention to them, good or bad. So, you know, and I look at my dog, right? Same thing. Sometimes it's kids. Right. If he's not, if he's not getting the attention that he wants, oh yeah, he'll go into a room and bring out a pillow that he knows he's not supposed to have. So what, what do we do with that? You know, and, and how do we, how do we work with what that is? It, 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 it can be difficult because the other stuff is all around us and it gets a lot of news and it gets a lot of attention, but it doesn't have to, you get to choose those things. And so my husband and I are very different in that way. He's a guy who, if somebody does something, commits an infraction in traffic, it will stay with him. I don't, I don't carry that. I'm like, fine, go on down the road, buddy. You're fine. You know, if there's something that happens in politics or something that happens, like if the power goes out, if it's a hurricane, we live in hurricane territory, you know, those are not things I can do anything about it, it, it happening or not, but I can absolutely do something about how I get through it. I can be of service to my neighbors. I can, if I know something's happening, I can be prepared and have a plan together and find out who's got what and who needs what and that kind of thing. But I think it, it really, it, it's a personal choice. And it's not one that people are going to make all of a sudden. These are little incremental, like micro steps, micro changes, if you will, sort of recalibrations of your life where you just decide little by little. It doesn't have to be wholesale. I want a, a great example is I want to get up. I want to start getting up at five. But I'm the kind of person, if I set my alarm for five, I'll get up at five one day, grumble my way through the day because oh, I didn't want to get up at five and I'll never do it again. So I played a trick on myself. And so every day I would just take a little time at night and I would change my alarm and I would go five minutes early, three minutes early, two minutes early, whatever it was. And I would go back and forth, back and forth until I was naturally getting up at five. I've been doing it since last year, since Joel, I think, introduced us to, to the five o'clock thing. So I've been doing it ever since. And it was the most natural thing. You can do the same thing with how you feel about things where you can really get clear on how much impact you want them to have and that they actually do have. And those, if they don't balance out, then you can start making little changes about those, you know, 
And sometimes it's as easy as just turning off the radio or the TV or, you know, not maybe talking to that person that, you know, is like the negative friend you always have and that kind of thing. or trying to steer the conversation differently. But I think that if you're intentional about it, you can begin to make those changes. But I think that the one of the difficulties people face is they try to eat the whole pie in one bite. You're not going to change, you know, habituated patterns in, in one go. They have to be little small steps. They become natural and organic and then they become lifelong and they change your life. Gretchen, before I uh, give the final question to Bridget, uh, if any of our listeners want to connect with you for coaching or any of your other services, what's the best way to uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. So uh, my website is careerinsightsconsulting.com. And my email is Gretchen at careerinsightsconsulting.com. Um, you can also reach me on Facebook. Uh, I'm a Gretchen Career Coach, but also LinkedIn, just my name, Gretchen Skalka. It's probably the easiest way to find me. Um, okay. Yeah. I'll put that and, in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Because yeah. I have a feeling some someone or maybe a few people may want to uh, reach out and go, hey, can you help me out? Yeah, it's always worth a conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, and, which leads me to the last question. Yes. Question, are you up for a second episode? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because this is I great. don't think we can cover all of these nice things. And, and one <laughs> of the points we've covered now um, in two, three minutes now. Right. So I would really love to have you again. Yeah. Tom, That'd be sorry great. for just pushing. No, uh, <laughs> it's funny because I was thinking uh, as we were going along, uh, I hope Gretchen's up for uh, being a repeat guest because the energy yeah. she brings to the show is just uh, exactly. amazing. So, oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> no, yeah. I love it. I love it. Awesome. I was like, so fantastic. You know, there is so much to learn from you. How to how to turn all these events in your life into gifts, and you are definitely one of the brightest, funniest, most lively, energetic persons I've met during during <laughs> my coaching career. So it would be great to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love I, to. I concur. And with that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring this episode to a close. Thank you so much for listening. You can always catch future episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And we also have the video version available on our YouTube channel. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. If this episode has inspired you in any way, shape, or form to take deeper stock of your own life and perhaps look at making some changes, why not do so with the help of a coach? You can check out my website, vivascoaching.com, or go to Bridget's website, bm-bluemountain.com, and sign up for a free session to find out how we can help you.